Let's pray. Father, we're so amazed at your goodness to us. And you have promised no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. You give us yourself. More than anything else, you offer yourself. We run to all the other things by nature, and yet you offer us Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the significance of that and learn to pray for that, for each other. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, and you would give us ears to hear, and, and not just to hear, but Lord, help us in the words of Jesus, to take care how we listen. We would take these truths and, and be found doers of the word and not merely hearers only. And Lord, we praise you that we are always dependent on you. and We don't always feel our dependence. But Father, I pray that we would come and lay our hearts before you as dependent creatures in desperate need of their sovereign Savior. Be glorified in us now, Father, as we worship through the Word of God and all the things that come out of it by your Spirit, for we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over the years of ministry here at Calvary Bible Church, people have frequently come and asked me, Pastor, how can I pray for you? And we all know the experience how it goes, you know, how can I pray for you? And, and I respond by saying, no, how can I pray for you? And we all kind of have experienced that, that sense of, you know, looking at the floor with a, a blank and empty expression. We try to come up with something in our lives for which we need prayer. You know, the job, job's going pretty good. Uh, marriage isn't too bad. If it were, probably wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Um, kids are growing up, they're growing, they keep growing, can't seem to stop them from growing, and everyone seems to be pretty healthy. I mean, so what do we, what do we have to pray for? Well, this morning, instead of diving back into our study of 2 Timothy, only to have it interrupted again next week and again the following week, I, I want to answer this basic question, how can I pray for you. And I really want to gear this toward how you as a church can pray for your pastors. Um, I, I just wanted to personalize it partially as a plea that you would pray for the elders of this church. And this is not going to be a simple sermon, so you're going to have to take some notes along the way to learn how Paul would have you pray for the leaders of your church. And actually, he in the text that I'm going to lead you through, he wants, he is praying for the people and expects the people to be praying for one another. But I'm concerned, just in, by way of application, that you know how to pray. Yes, pray for one another, but pray for me and pray for the other elders of this church. And let me suggest to you that, that you learn to pray best by, I think, looking at what the apostles have prayed, what Paul prayed for the believers, and specifically what he prayed for them in Ephesus. So let's look at it together. Uh, not 2 Timothy this time, but Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And let's stand together and we'll read this. Ephesians, did I say Ephesians? Ephesians 1. Got a check from time to time, 15 through 23. Listen carefully now, follow along. Paul writes, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might." 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. As I was saying, if you want to learn how to pray, perhaps the best thing you can do is study the the prayers of the Bible, and specifically the prayers of the Apostle Paul. The passage before us this morning is one of those prayers. In, in this case, Paul is praying for believers in the church of Philippi, I'm sorry, the church of Ephesus, uh, which Paul planted himself. It was a good church, but like all good churches, it also had its share of challenges. Paul, too, is facing a significant challenge as he had recently been placed under house arrest in Rome. And yet, even though Paul was was in one of the greatest positions of need he had ever been in, in this context, his prayer is not for himself. How would you pray if you found yourself suddenly in jail and you're writing an email to your church back in Fort Worth? What would you pray for? You know, send somebody with keys to unlock that cell and let me out. Pray that the Lord would, would give me a better bed, you know, a better cellmate. Pray that I'd be released. None of that from the Apostle Paul. Paul's prayers tend to sound a little different than ours. Typically, when we Western Christians pray for others, we focus, on, we focus our petitions on relief from suffering and the restoration of comfort And health, but Paul never prayed like that. Never prayed like that. Isn't that interesting? His concern was always that believers and church leaders alike go deep in the knowledge of God and love for God and obedience to God for the glory of Christ, no matter what their circumstances. And that is certainly the case here. What specifically did Paul ask God to do for the believers in Ephesus? Well, His primary prayer is that they would grow deep in the knowledge of God. That they would grow deep in the knowledge of God. So if you want to know how to pray for your pastors, if you want to know how to pray for me and my family, then ask on our behalf for a more intimate knowledge of God. Or I frequently say when people ask me, On the fly, how can I pray for you? I don't necessarily think of this passage, but I know it's all over Scripture. And the simplest way I know to say it is, pray that I'll love Jesus more. Pray that I'll know him more. Look at verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. On one occasion, Job asked, can man by searching find out God? Paul believed not only that we can, but that we must. For example, Jesus said in John chapter 17, that eternal life consists of Knowing God. On the Mount of Olives, he prayed, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is salvation? Salvation is not merely the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is a means to an end. It is not just the establishment of perfect righteousness. That too is a means to an end. Because the means that, or the ends that God is after is simply this, that we would know God, that we would know him. This is eternal life. 
And so you see, eternal life is not about one day seeing the pearly gates or the streets of gold or being reunited with loved ones who have gone before. No, eternal life is simply about, and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't throw in the caveat simply because there's nothing simple about knowing the God who is infinite in all of his perfections. To spend eternity knowing and growing in the knowledge of God, living in personal communion with the Father, starting now, starting the day you first believed. You know what? We can, we can get so sidetracked from this. We can get so busy doing ministry and, and checking off our spiritual disciplines, and, and all of that's great. You should be disciplined. But are we being disciplined for communion with God? That's what Paul is talking about. It's not just know about God. It is knowing God like a man knows his wife, like a wife knows her husband. It's something that continues. You're constantly knowing, constantly getting to know, constantly growing in your knowledge of one another. By the way, this has always been true, this idea that eternal life is knowing God, or we might say salvation consists in knowing God. Even in the Old Testament, this is how God spoke of those who belong to him. That didn't occur to me probably ever until this week in studying this passage. Now for, let me give you an example. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he, he, the Lord declares, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his Wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. He knows me. You could call a true Christian a knower of God. This is one who knows God. In Russia, they refer to true Christians as repenters. And that's a wonderful term. But even repentance has an object. It's taking us somewhere. We're repenting unto God that we might know God. On the other hand, in the Old Testament, unbelievers, listen to this, unbelievers were described as people who do not know God. Or, Jeremiah 9, 6 says, they refuse to know God. It's not like they didn't take that class. Well, I didn't, I didn't know God because I didn't get knowing God 101. No, 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 no. You don't know him because you don't want to know him. They refuse to know him. And by the way, Jesus picks up on this way of thinking about salvation when he predicts that one day he, the Lord himself, will say to many, depart from me, I never, what? Knew. knew you. It is this knowledge of God, being known by God and knowing God, that is the essence of our eternal life. And what a privilege who are we and who are my children? Who is this, this people, this church, that we would know God? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. We are, of all people, the most privileged. We know God in a way that the angels can't know him. And so here in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that God the Father of glories, interesting title, isn't it? Father of glories. This is the glorious Father. This is the Shekinah God. The Father of glories would give us the knowledge of him. And yet, knowing the Lord is not a static thing. It, it's not one and done. And the reason I say that, though I've already explained this, is because we kind of relate to God like this. You know, I, I, I prayed the prayer. I repented. I put my trust in Jesus. It's, it's kind of like the, the wife who complains that her husband doesn't express affection, doesn't say, I love you, and, and he says, I told you that I loved you on the day we got married. If anything changes... I'll let you know. <laughs> and we treat God like that. 
We think of knowing God as that thing that we did that day or that thing that he did in us that day. And that's not wrong, but we think of it sometimes, or at least we act like we think of it as something that happened back then, and that's all we need. And that's all the Christian life is about when it's not. It's about us growing in the knowledge of him. You may have trusted Christ for salvation. You may have repented of your sins long ago and experienced real change in your life as a result. But every true Christian discovers very quickly that the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are unsearchable. And we should search them anyway. His ways are unfathomable, but we should drop the line and try to fathom it anyway. And we will spend eternity learning and discovering and joyfully embracing the infinite riches that are ours as we grow in intimate knowledge of God. You remember when you first came to Christ, how excited you were to be reconciled to God? You still have that? You still have it? Do you still pursue him as you did on the day you first believed? You see, there's a great difference between having an, an innate knowledge of God and having an intimate knowledge of God. Everyone in the world has an innate knowledge of God. Romans 1, Paul makes it clear that every human being is born with an innate knowledge of God. We have eternity written on our hearts. But only God's children get the privilege of experiencing an intimate knowledge of God. And for the apostle, it was the modus operandi of his life. No doubt, that's the reason why in Philippians 3, he declares famously these words. Whatever gain I had, Counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of, what's the next word? Knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may, what? Gain Christ. This is not, this is not, Getting more of him like we get salvation incrementally. No, 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 no. This is gaining a deep, intimate knowledge of Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he bursts out in this exaltation that I may, what? Know him and the power of his resurrection. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? This is the Apostle Paul. He's still talking like he doesn't fully know God yet, because he doesn't. He knows God probably in his life a hundred times more than I do or you may. But his prayer was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. What was it like for him to suffer if my suffering is the only way I'm going to know what it was like for him to suffer, then bring on the suffering. Becoming like him in his death. That's why Paul wasn't afraid of death. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to submit to you that the reason Paul was so effective in ministry was because he was a man who knew the Lord he was a man who was ever hungry to know more of God. Growing in an intimate knowledge of God was his first priority and greatest ambition for himself and for all of his church members who belong to Christ. What's Paul praying? He's saying, I'm praying that you will love Jesus more. Praying that you would love the Father more. Praying that you would love the Spirit more. That you would be more dependent upon Him. That you would see Him at work in your life. That you would, you would thrive on Him and die without Him. So coming to know God and be known by Him 
It's only the first step. Now there lies before us an an eternity of getting to know God. And so Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the Father of glories would grant us the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. And so I ask you as members of Calvary Bible Church, would you pray? Would you pray for your pastors? Would you pray for the elders of this church that we would grow deep and experience an ever-deepening knowledge of God in Christ. That's what I hope you pray for me. Secondly, pray for a spiritually enlightened heart. Now, you're going to have to try to follow me on this, follow Paul on this, because this is not an, an easy passage. Verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And notice here that knowledge of God is at the end of the verse. And the reason I dealt with that first is because it's the object of everything else around it. Everything around it is pointing back to this, the knowledge of God. Even when he says in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, the object of that or the goal of that is that we would know God. And so we kind of have to go back to the beginning of verse 17 to pick up the other things that Paul is saying, the means by which we come to know God. And so he says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, listen to this, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. The goal of Paul's prayer here is that we would gain an ever-deepening knowledge of God. The question becomes, by what means do we attain such knowledge? And Paul tells us in verse 17, it comes as God grants us, as the Father of glory grants us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation by having our eyes and hearts enlightened. And I would submit to you, after studying this, this is... This is my take on these three things, is that they are really not three things. These are parallel terms, all referring to the same thing. And what Paul is saying is, you you can't do this on your own. You need the Father of glory to bring this about for you, to give it to you, to grant it to you. by having the eyes of your heart enlightened, by gaining a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. By the way, the word spirit here, pneuma, can be, depending on how it's used, it it can mean a number of things. But here I think it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit necessarily, nor is it referring to the spirit of man. That is your inner person. It's not referring to that. Rather, Paul seems to be referring to a certain disposition or inclination or an attitude. Jesus uses the same term, spirit, in the same way in Matthew 5, 3, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Obviously not the Holy Spirit. And poor in spirit isn't talking about the inner man, your spiritual you, but rather it's a disposition. It's an attitude. It's a a driving force in your life. He wasn't meaning Holy Spirit or human spirit, but rather this general disposition which is wrought by God, an attitude, an inclination to know him, a desire to know him as fully as we can possibly know. When Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, what what does he mean? I think the two terms are just kind of different facets of the same jewel. That God would grant us an ever-deepening understanding of himself as he has revealed himself. As he has revealed himself. Hence, revelation. A spirit of revelation. That God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And the two go together because the spirit of wisdom or 
That attitude of seeking the wisdom of God comes as we seek it in the word of God, the revelation of God. Paul is praying, I pray that you, you are ravenously hungry for knowing God. And if you are, it will drive you to his word. And if you are, it will drive you to, to learning everything you can about the Father of glories and his Son, Jesus Christ, and you will bring them to bear upon your life with divine wisdom. And you will change. Listen, beloved, your pastors, your elders at Calvary Bible Church need the spirit of wisdom and spirit of revelation. Week after week, day after day, God calls us to ever grow deeper in the knowledge of God and to bring that intimate knowledge to bear on our own lives first and then on the practical issues of life in the local church. Believe me, if you were to sit in on any of our meetings in 1999, you would... Uh, well, this is 1999. Boy, I'm, I'm flashing back to when Jim Pittman was here. Uh, 2019, if you were to sit in on, on those conversations, you would know, Ming, where, where, where do we get wisdom for this? These difficult, difficult issues. And the answer to that is, first, know me. Know me. Pursue the knowledge of me. Everything comes from him. And it all happens, if it happens at all, through the faithful study and the ministry of the Word of God, that which God has revealed about himself. And to give you a glimpse of practically how this works, or expositorily how this works, let's just take a minute to look at part of the revelation that God has given us by which we know him. And it's right here in Ephesians. And, and just look back to the beginning of this chapter, chapter 1. And pick up with me at verse 3. Let's see if you can pick up on God revealing himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How would, how would we know what happened before the foundation of the world if God didn't reveal it? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, you want to explore the knowledge of God for the next nine months? Work on chapter one, the first half. This is what God has called you to do. This is what God especially has called the pastors of this church to do. Seek the knowledge of God in his word. But we're not just looking for theology. This is the living God 
And he is alive in us. This is, this is the hope of glory. Christ in you. And the only way you're going to learn anything about that and the dynamics of that is by the spirit of revelation and wisdom. Having your eyes enlightened so that you understand these, this deep, rich revelation of God, the revelation of his person. You say, how much has he revealed about himself? Everything we need and more than we can comprehend. The word of God is full of such rich self-revelations. As pastors, our calling is to dive deep into the spiritual realities revealed in God's word, to eat them and drink them, to internalize them, and then to invite each of you to come and enjoy the living water and the bread of life that we have found in his word. I was praying with the elders this morning, and I'm always the last one to pray, so I get to hear all these guys pray. And it's such a delight. I was just rejoicing in it this morning. Every one of these brothers brought scripture. And here they are unpacking the word of God in brief, but reminding us of the revelation of God. And so you see, when, when you can only give to others, really, you can only give to others what we have discovered ourselves. We can't give away what we don't possess. And so I ask you, pray for us. Look, we're not concerned terribly about being sick. We're not concerned about our cars breaking down. Pray that we would know God. Pray that the Father of glory would grant to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The answer to every practical issue in life begins here. To pray that we might grow in the knowledge of God is to pray the richest blessing that one human being can ask for on behalf of another. God, bless them with the knowledge of God. Bless them with the knowledge of Christ. Increase their love of Christ. Give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Open their eyes, having eyes of your heart. And notice this is, this is something going on in your heart. This isn't just mental exercise. You're not just memorizing facts. This is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And Paul knew that, and he demonstrated it all through the New Testament. There was nothing that he wanted more for God's people than to know God intimately as he was coming to know God. Can you imagine the effect it would have had on the church of Ephesus if Paul's prayer was answered in them. Imagine the disputes and the wrangling about words that he warned Timothy about because he was in Ephesus. Imagine how many of those arguments would never have happened. How many of the divisions, how much of that false teaching would have been either dealt with more quickly or never have been a problem at all. This is exactly what was on his mind when he wrote Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, when here's another prayer of Paul. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, there's the glory of the Father again, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen, he's praying that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that you may, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? That you would know Christ. That you, he continues, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend just insert the word, know, 
that you would know with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's what it means. That phrase, these phrases, I mean, these, these are synonymous phrases, virtually. That you would be filled up with the fullness of God means that you would know God in fullest measure. That you would know his love for you. That you would know the glory of how God loved you. He gave his son, the only one. Paul prays for us believers because he knows how great are the depths that we have to explore in the knowledge of God. He himself had been in covenant with Christ for many years by now, and yet he confesses that though he has been growing in the knowledge of God all this time, he had hardly begun to grasp all that there is to know of his glory or apply to his life. He says, it's not as though I've attained, but I press on. The apostle is praying, not that we would merely know something about God, but that we might hunger and thirst for the living God. With a vibrant communion with God, with real fellowship with God, with intimate relationship with God. He is praying that we would grow in our appreciation of all that God has done for us from before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. You know him. You know him. One of the indicators that we're growing in an intimate knowledge of God, one of the, one of the um, standards of measurement, we might say, regarding your knowledge of God is, okay, you're ready to be convicted in your prayer life. Martin Lloyd-Jones Keith and I were riding home from the conference yesterday, and I read this to him, and he said, that's convicting. How many of you want me to read it now? <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you cannot pray for an hour, why can you not? You can talk to your neighbors and friends for an hour easily, nay, for hours. Why then is it difficult for you to speak to God for an hour? There's only one answer. It is because we do not know him. We do not know him sufficiently, and we are not conscious that we are in his presence. That is a simple fact. Two sayings, not complicated. If you're not a praying person, it's because you don't know him. I'm not saying you're lost. I mean, that's a possibility. I'm not saying you're lost. I'm just saying... The calling with which you have been called is not only that you would discover God and be saved by him, but that you would know him. This is eternal life, that you would know God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So you want to know how you can pray for me and the elders? Pray that our knowledge of God would grow, our intimacy with, knowledge of, uh, uh, our intimacy with God would grow, our love for Christ would grow. Pray that our knowledge of God would expand every time we go into the Word, and that, that it wouldn't just be theology. It would be theology that leads to doxology, that it would cause us to worship from the heart and repent of sin and glory in Christ Jesus. You're going to meet Pastor Jim next week when he comes to preach on my behalf and yours. And I'll never forget one day. He doesn't know this, so don't tell him. Um, <laughs> I stepped into his office one day. I was in the office right next door. I wanted to talk to him, so I just kind of turned the knob and burst in. And he had his Bible open, and his head was bowed over his, over his Bible, and he's just weeping. And I said, everything okay? And he just got his breath for a minute, and he said, glory. It's glorious. I don't even know what he was reading. I just went back out the door and closed it. It should not be uncommon for us. If you're looking for glory in God's word, you'll find it. 
You won't have to search long. You want to know how you can pray for me and the elders? Pray that our knowledge of God would grow. Pray that he would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in his word. Pray that every time we open his word, we would discover something precious about Christ and that we might glory in Christ Jesus and, and help others live in a deeper communion with God. But there's something else that I would ask you to pray for. Paul spells it out in verses 18 and 19. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, which I think corresponds to the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, the purpose of those two things is that our eyes, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that you may know, watch this, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Here's what I want you to pray. Ask God for a dependent reliance upon grace. A dependent reliance. Pray, pray that for me, that I would be dependently reliant, that the elders of this church would be dependently reliant upon God's grace. Listen, once the eyes of your heart are enlightened to know the Father of glory, you begin to realize how incredibly rich you are in Christ. You say, you don't understand how sinful I am. I don't need to know. All I know is that your sin is not greater than God. Your sin, whatever it was, is not greater than grace. And when you think of grace, you might think of forgiveness, and that is an enormous grace. You might think of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to your account. That's an enormous grace, but that's not all the grace. And Paul picks out three here. He could, he could name a hundred. He mentions three gifts of grace that every believer has by virtue of knowing God, namely the graces of hope, heaven, and power. And Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened as you are knowing God to the hope of his calling. Okay, so you are learning God. You are growing in the knowledge of God. And, and one of the things you discover very quickly as you're learning about God is that you didn't choose him, he chose you. Amen. And I'm not trying to be theologically controversial, I'm trying to fill you with hope. Hopelessness in life comes from a sense that you've reached a dead end, that life has turned really bad, that your sin has become overwhelmingly great, perhaps, that the bottom has dropped out, your situation offers no way of escape, and the only thing to look forward to is pain, grief, rejection, and disappointment. That is completely the wrong perspective for a child of God. You have forgotten the grace of hope. God has called you. He, here's a better way, maybe not a better, I mean, Paul wrote this. Here's a way that you might understand it better is what I'm saying. He adopted you. One day he went into your orphanage where you were laying there in all of your muck and filth of your sin and he said, I'll take this one. He is mine. If you know Christ, it doesn't matter what your past sin is. He chose you. Because he loved you. Not because you were so lovable, but because he is love. When God, the God of grace, and by his grace, you're able to bring the truth of God's word to bear on your soul in those occasions when you were hopeless. You know what happens? Hope returns. So here's how it works. You get the spirit of wisdom from the Father of glory and the spirit of revelation, the spirit of wisdom to understand the revelation that he has given. The eyes of your heart are opened and you who are hopeless 
become hopeful again. And then you're able to face whatever difficulties lie ahead, even with joy. I mean, imagine, imagine Joshua standing at the river. Uh, there's a city on the other side of the river. It's at flood stage, by the way, the river. Um, God brought him at the most impossible time to cross that river. And Keith talked about this when he was in that part of Joshua 10 years ago. <laughs> Faithful preacher. And his assignment was to conquer the unconquerable city. And to do it not with sword and spear, not at first anyway, but with trumpets. And not really trumpets, but they were... They were horns of a ram cut off to make a very annoying sound. And that was it. You think he was feeling hopeful? And then he's out at night and he's looking across the river at the lights of the city across the way, wondering, you know, how should I approach this? And a man appears to him carrying a sword. And Joshua says, are you with me or are you against me? And he went, neither. Take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. Behold, I am with you, Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You get to know God. That's everything you need. Where does true hope come from when you're beginning to be tempted toward a sense of hopelessness or lust or whatever the sin may be that you tend to gravitate to? Paul says it is the hope that comes when you recall that you have been chosen by God to be his very own. Can there be any greater hope for living? You may have trouble accepting yourself. You may think that other people hate you because of your sin or something about you. But when you have the spirit of revelation and wisdom and your heart, the eyes of your heart are enlightened, you realize the only person who matters loves me and he gave his life for me. Paul used the first 14 verses of Ephesians to reveal this magnificent truth of election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness, wisdom, insight, inheritance, the sealing of the Spirit, all of that just in the first 14 verses. And these precious realities are not just to fill our heads with theological abstractions, but rather to fill our very souls with hope. Listen, if you have hope, you will have courage if you have this hope, you will purify yourself. You won't be messing around with that stuff, whatever it is. How do you think Paul was able to persevere in all of his excruciating trials? How did he keep hope alive? Answer, he was constantly pursuing the knowledge of God. Knowing and believing these things helps us respond to temptation like David did when he exhorted his own soul with these words, Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in, cast, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? I mean, some, I mean you, you're not always going to be growing in the knowledge of God. It's going to be like this. And, and, and hopefully upward generally. But there are going to be times when you're down and you're going to have to you're going to have to do business with your soul. Why are you in despair within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his, what's the next word? Presence. What's he mean? The knowledge of God. In the presence of God. The presence of the invisible spirit of God. It's all about knowing God. Knowing the doctrine of God, calling and God's calling and choosing you is the basis of your hope. So Paul wrote that familiar passage in Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love 
God, just think, no, God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Those who know him are called according to his purpose. And for them, no matter what the circumstance, God is using it for good. Paul prayed that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would be able to embrace the grace of hope for the present. But there's more. He also wants us to embrace the grace of an inheritance for the future. Notice he calls this grace the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. For the Old Testament Israel, Old Testament Israel, the inheritance was the promised land. It was the future land flowing with milk and honey that God promised again and again. For New Testament saints, the inheritance is heaven. And by the way, the inheritance is not only for us, it's mostly for Jesus. The inheritance of the, of the saints, that's what Jesus inherits. God has promised to give to the Son a host that cannot be numbered of people who will know him and love him and come to know him more and more for eternity to the praise of his glory. This is the inheritance. Jesus gets you for an inheritance, and you get him and all of the saints as your inheritance. You remember when Jesus said, whoever doesn't forsake father and mother for me is not worthy of me, and Peter said, look, we've, lo we've left everything. What do we get? And you read that, and you think, okay, here comes smackdown time, right? <laughs> and Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I tell you the truth. Those of you who have left fathers and mothers, children, farms, were received a hundredfold in the kingdom. Brothers and mothers and fathers and sisters. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. You know, <laughs> um, sometimes people come to Calvary Bible Church and they're, they're either not saved or they're acting like they're not saved because they're not part of a church. And they come in and they see what, what goes on here. It's not just filing in and filing out and nobody says anything. It's like we come together as family. We love each other. We're concerned about each other. We ask questions. We dig. We pray. We prod. We love. And they come in. I know my mom and dad experienced this. They came in. And they said, we've never, seen it. we've never seen anything like this. The love. You know what that is? It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. I got mothers down here on the front row, right? And the row after that, I got sisters all over who treat me like a brother. Got brothers that I pray with and weep with and work with. This is the reward. This is the inheritance. And we get a taste of it here already, and yet the full fulfillment of it is not yet. When Christ gets his inheritance, the saints, we get our inheritance, Christ and all his people. And there'll be no more weeping or crying anymore. And part of the reason for that is because there won't be any fighting anymore. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, meditating on what God has prepared in heaven for us, for those of us who love Christ, is not just a distracting pastime for ultra-religious folks. I wish I could read this in an English accent. You'd get this. <laughs> to the contrary, it is a command of God intent on keeping our hearts pure in a world poisoned by sin. For 1 John 3.3 reads, he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. You want to know how to battle your lack of purity? Pursue the knowledge of God and your heart will be purified. You will hate that sin. The true lack of scriptural holiness today, Lloyd-Jones says, is due at least in part to the fact that we do not spend sufficient time meditating upon the glory that awaits us in the future. 
And the author of Hebrews affirms the same thing. And in, in, in the truth found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, by exhorting us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race before us with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. By the way, fixing your eyes is just a synonym for knowing. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for, listen, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. What motivates you to lay aside whatever encumbers you from running the race well, from knowing God well, from growing in an intimate knowledge of God? What motivates that? Here it is, the joy that is set before you, the inheritance of the saints. We get to begin knowing God now, and then we inherit him fully later with all of his people and the angels. So Paul prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God so that we can appropriate these three graces, the grace of hope, um, the grace of heaven, and finally, the grace of power. Let me point out that Paul was not praying that, that God would give us more power for living. Rather, he wants us to come to a deeper and fuller appreciation of the power that we already have in Christ. What kind of power are we talking about? Look at verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above rule and authority. And then he goes on to talk about the glory of Christ on this throne. This is not some different kind of power. This is the father of glory giving you unmerited help in your time of need. It's the same help that he gave when he raised Jesus from the dead. It is the same help, the power of God by which he saved us. It is the same help, that divine power that is sanctifying us. It is that same help, that power that is building the church regardless of the opposition by all the minions of hell. And it is that same power that we have to live the way God has called us to live. Sometimes you feel like God is asking too much. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he said it in the same letter where he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. All of these things, beloved, they already belong to you. They already belong to you. But we're so distracted. We're so distracted by life. We become so busy. We have such frenetic schedules. Who has time to know God? And yet it's in knowing God that all of these graces are poured out upon us. How many of us really appreciate what we've been given? How many of us turn to the infinite and eternal resources in Christ when we need them to battle temptation, to discipline ourselves for godliness and to share the gospel, to pursue holiness, to take risks for God. Well, much more can be said on this, but I'm out of time. I just want you to pray for me and for the elders of our church. And I want you to pray for one another. And I want the elders to be praying for you along these lines. Same thing. Paul gave this to us, not just so we would know what he prayed for them as spectators, but that we would learn from these things, how to pray for one another. How do you pray for your wife? How do you pray for your kids? How do you pray for your pastor? Here's what I ask that you would pray. I ask that you would ask God to give the elders of this church a more intimate knowledge of God, a spiritually enlightened heart as they study the word of God, and a dependent reliance 
on his manifold graces. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift that the letter to Ephesus is for us and every document found in the Bible, every inspired word, every word of yours is true and righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, more than much fine gold, and in keeping them, there is much reward. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And so may we be this morning, O oh Father, both exhorted and warned. And Lord, I pray the result would be a deeper, greater knowledge of Christ, love for Christ, love for the Father, love for the Spirit, manifest in prayer and obedience and humble dependence upon you. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.